Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 20. A Viennese harmonia pointed to a map of the locale that he'd pinned upon a wall in the chateau's Industriana room. Windsor Castle's four miles from here, he said. I think you could walk around that during the hours of daylight, even this late in the year. But beware, the hair is thick around here. I would not want to make the journey. Then there are the tribes. Many strange people traverse Windsor Great Park, hunting. They will eat human flesh. They have bows and arrows and wheeled engines of spume. You take a risk venturing out there. Is there no other way? Konyuko passed. What about the hiring of one of the aerial snoods? Viennese shook his head. They will only fly between here and Biggin Hill. Cornucope shrugged. Yes, yes, then we shall walk. We are strong and resourceful. You will need luck also. Lady Luck watches over my wife and I. Of that I am quite certain. With that, they prepared themselves and their belongings, then walked with Viennese to the front gate of the chateau. He let them out, then gave them a final warning. Do not eat anything you find. Much is poisoned, or tainted with hallucinogenic moonshine. We'll be careful, Yegman said. Goodbye. They turned away, then headed along the road, leading to the nearest entrance to Windsor Great Park. Late autumn sunlight lit golden-brown trees, and there remained a hint of frost in shadows that had not yet felt the sun. Zarina insisted on walking beside Cornucope, to his small embarrassment but considerable amusement. He realized that he liked the woman for her charm, her not inconsiderable beauty, but most of all for the vulnerability that came from her modest achievements in mastering the English tongue. She tried to speak well, but knew she could not. Her coquettish smile was a delight to see. You are the active man in the great wide world, she asked him. All members of the suicide club, Cornucope replied, are men of the world. It's a heavy mantle to wear, he sighed for effect. Ah, but a man can serve his country in many ways, not just by acts of daring do. Can a woman be serving her country? Cornucope grimaced. In some cases, perhaps. Generally, these things are best left to the menfolk. You're considering volunteering your services to the king? Zarina laughed, a hand raised to cover her mouth. There are so many things I could be doing for this country, she said. What skills do you have, if I might be so bold? Again, she tittered. The arts of amour, as those of Parisia saying. The persuadings of people. The subtle methods of subterfuge. Those are all valuable skills, Cornucope said. The government would be interested. He paused to consider, then added, Perhaps I could put in a good word for you with Lord Blandhubble. She took his arms in hers in a most familiar fashion. Surprised, Cornucope let her. Estatia and Yegman walked ahead. His wife could not see them. You Easterners are a passionate breed, 
he observed. But, alas, I am a married man. Marriage is for those wishing to live in cages. Amor is so much more. Do not tell me that yourself, a strong and handsome gentleman, cannot be feeling the touch of a lady. Cornucope found himself fascinated by her stance. Was she some sort of high-class trollop? If not, perhaps she was smitten with him. He replied, In Britain we follow different rules. I shall abstain from commenting on them. By now they had entered Windsor Great Park and were walking through woodland, deer grazing in the distance, chestnuts lying all over the ground. Cornucope brought up the rear, Yegman leading with the two ladies secure in the middle of the party. As noon passed, they struck a patch of thick black hair, which, seeing no way round, they had to forge a path through. It was exhausting work. Once through, they decided to halt beside a dense copse for luncheon. It was as they were drinking ginger beer and eyeing a box of cheese mustachios that the tribesmen struck. Before Cornucope could struggle to his feet, they'd lassoed and bound both Yegman and Anastasia. Serena screeched, helpless. Then Cornucope found himself facing a tall, pale man wearing a hay skirt and ivory necklaces. Cornucope brought out his revolver and fired, but the man dodged, and he had to fire again, then again, then a fourth time to kill the blighter. By then, the other three in his party were being carried off into the gloom between trees. Halt, you fiends! he cried. It was too late. Only a little too late. But the tribesmen had an advantage of knowing their ground. Cornucope stopped, his suicide club training kicking in. These savages were no match for a Britisher. He would rescue his comrades. He used his woodsman's skills to follow their trail, which led to a clearing in the copse. At once, he noticed an escape route. A wide path between the trees on the far side, leading to a tributary of the River Thames. In the open, he could outmaneuver these tribesmen. In the copse, he was less advantaged. But his wife and the other two were in trouble. Yegman and Estatia surrounded by savages. Zarina inside a great black pot beneath which kindling lay. They meant to poach her. Cornucope studied their weapons, bows and arrows, little more, no sign of guns. He possessed two revolvers. Could he frighten them into submission? It seemed his only hope. Then he noticed Estatia looking in his direction. At the same time, he spotted a light bobbing up and down across the pale skins of his enemy. His platinum tie-pin, at once, he masked it with his hand. She must have seen the flickering light, the reflection of the sun, and known what it was. That was close. But now he knew what to do. He loaded the revolvers, eight bullets each, then stood up. Uttering the war cry of the Kashmiri Indu, he stormed into the clearing, throwing one of the revolvers to Estatia before the savages had a chance to react. She caught it, then fired, shooting to kill. He did likewise, scattering the tribespeople. 
Without delay, and knowing that Eustatia would cover him, he ran to the cooking pot and hauled Zarina out. She was as limp as a boned haddock. Oh, sir, you have saved my life. She grabbed him and kissed him, then repeated, You have saved my life. Forever I will be in debtor. Run, he shouted, pointing to the tributary. Yegman freed, led the way, and then Eustatia was at his side, the barrel of her revolver smoking. By now the savages had put arrows to bows and were aiming for them. Dodging and leaping to provide a more difficult target, they ran, catching up with the other two, then exhorting them to follow suit. Moments later, all four were out of the copse and in full sunlight. Cornucope halted, fired his last bullets, then turned and ran. A few arrows hit the ground nearby, but the savages seemed dispirited by their loss and did not follow them into open ground. That was a close shave, Cornucope said, when they were well away. Yegman and Zarina were breathing harsh and heavy, so he called a halt. The land around them was green and lightly haired, easy territory. There was time enough for a rest. While Yegman cleaned and bound a bleeding graze on Eustatia's arm, Zarina told Cornucope, You are the bravest man I am meeting. I honour you, courageous Britisher, and if there might anything be I can do to repay the debtor, you only have to ask. Decent of you, Cornucope responded. He walked over to Eustatia and said, just a flesh wound. She smiled up at him. I knew you were nearby. He nodded. The tie pin. He pulled it off and placed it in his pocket. Perhaps wearing the full suit today was a mistake. The sun was now beginning to set into misty yellow haze, and a chill had come to the air. But with Windsor Castle only a mile and a half away, they felt hopeful of safety in the town. They set off walking the bramble-strewn ground, crossing muddy streams and tramping through docks and nettles before reaching the paved road that led into the shallow valley lying before Windsor Castle. There it is, Yegman said, pointing to the sun-ruddied stately pile. There we shall arrive before the night does. Hurry, Eustatia said. I can see them lighting lanterns atop the parapets, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere near the park when night falls. To this, they all agreed, so they hurried down the road. I take it you have entry to the castle? Cornucope asked Yegman. Entry? No, I have to use my wits. Cornucope frowned. You mean you're cunning? All castles have concealed exits and entrances. Windsor is no different. Zarina took his hand in hers and gave him a secret smile. Trust him, she whispered, like I trust you. Jeremy assisted Mrs. along the gangplank, leading from the Titanic to the concrete embankment of the old sun wharf. He had slept for a few hours on the ferry, but now, as the sun rose through Limehouse fog in the east, he was still tired, and he was hungry. He surveyed Narrow Street. It did not look good. This whole district was dense with pubic hair, thick, black and curly. Many of the disembarking passengers wielded machetes, 
which they already used to clear paths through to Horse Ferry Road. Sharmi surveyed the scene with sinking heart. He had no machete. Don't worry, Mrs. said, giving his hand a squeeze. We'll find a way through, that we will. Sharmi considered. He wanted to return to Gough Square as soon as possible, but that meant going through the East End, on foot, as he had no coin, unless he should chance upon some kind aerogator. He said, We need to find a way to Butcher Row and Cable Street, which hopefully we could follow to Whitechapel. Then it's a short step through the city to Gough Square. A short steps will be a long step through all this. He nodded. Limehouse has been merkinized, he observed, and we've got nothing to cut it down. But then a gourmet thinnergrade leant over the gunwale of his vessel and said, Here, you two scurvos, have these old dirks. They're blunt and no use to my tars. Tis only a little, but it may help you. Why? Thank you, Jeremy replied catching the dirks as Gourmain threw them down. The leather sheaths were rotting and blades rusty, but he felt they might be serviceable if they scraped them across stone. See that ingrown pube over there? Gourmain said, indicating a red and swollen lump at the edge of the quayside. Use the oil inside it for lubrication and the granite of that there building for a whetstone. Then be off with you. They followed Gourmain's instructions. Then he turned to face Narrow Street. Sharmi's stomach rumbled. I'm starving, he said. Me too, Mrs. replied. Sharmi sighed. What am I saying? All of London will be starving, and the poor folk will be the worst hit, as usual. Yet we too must survive if we're to discover the reason for all this hair. The building on which they sharpened their dirks was the ruined office of the key manager, whose name they saw on a brass plate beneath a lock of dark hair. Fonswile Smithers. Cutting back the hair growing from the front door, they forced a way in, then explored the place, finding a kitchenette at the back. Looted, Jeremy said, observing the mess of rotting meat and mouldy vegetables that had been discarded by the vandals. Tins, though, Mrs. said, pointing at a cupboard. Yes, the ware tin cans. This novel form of food storage was unfamiliar to Jeremy, but then he remembered something. My valet claims there's an implement that allows a fellow to open cans such as these. Tins opener, Mrs. said. There must be one right here if Fonswile had tins. Damn good thinking. Sharamy ransacked the kitchen drawers until Mrs. squeaked and said, There! That metal thing there! Between them, and with much panting and puffing, they managed to open three of the tins to discover plums in syrup and mashed tomatoes. This feast they poured into bowls, eating with gusto. After drinking billy cans of water, which they boiled on a gas arc, Monsieur Pasteur, Jeremy explained, tells us there are micro-animals in ordinary water. They readied their dirks and strode out into Narrow Street. After only an hour, they stumbled across the battle. From the north came the soldiers of Stepney, 
from the south, those of Shadwell. The great bakery on Martineau Street was the prize, and both sides wanted it. The Stepneyites, led by Colonel Pomp on his pure white horse, the Shadwellers, led by Captain Hanury, sitting hunched up on a steam velocipede. Most of the Shadwellers wore steel-tipped greaves and gloves of nut macadamia, and their tactic was to use the power of their hydro-technology to blast away to their enemy through the fiendish hair. The Stepneyites, by contrast, rode ponies and large dogs and were mostly composed of midgets who could hide in a curl of pubic hair, then spring forth to dislodge a steaming rider when he least expected it. Sheremy and Mrs. watched from the sidelines, wondering how they were going to continue. But then Sheremy saw a fallen velocipede that kicked its legs like an upside-down beetle, venting steam from clanking joints. Its pennant, a loaf couchant on a field of vert, hung loose, bloody and torn. Without hesitation, Sheremy pushed his way through the hair and lifted the machine upright, sitting on the seat so that he could experiment with the controls. A lever to move the thing forward, a lever to move it back. These buttons here to control speed and altitude seem simple enough. Mrs. Come and sit on my lap, he cried, over the clamour of ponies being torn asunder by superheated steam. Slipping on oil dripping from the pubic hair, Mrs. ran towards him. Then, as Sheremy pressed buttons to lower the seating deck, jumped upon his lap. The velocipede creaked, steam venting from its joints. But she was light, and it steadied itself, then groaned and stood upright. Sheremy worked levers to make it walk into King David Lane, then turned right into the highway. The velocipede seat was comfortable, leather and satin cushions with a packet of ginger biscuits between one of the cushions. But it was a seat meant for only one. Sheremy hoped he would be free of the battle soon. The machine walked carefully, like a heron on lily pads, moving over the most luxuriant pubic curls with little difficulty. Mrs. squealed like a girl at every jolt. But then a detachment of ponies appeared on the approach to Cannon Street Road, and Sheremy was forced to stop. Are there guns aboard this thing? Mrs. asked. Sheremy saw nozzles, but had no idea what they were. Oh, we're only a few hundred yards from East Smithfield, he said, and that means Whitechapel is close. Pressing buttons, he lowered the seating deck so they could jump out, but a rain of miniature arrows made of quills flew towards them, which they had to duck by diving amidst the hair. Crawling between oily curls, they struggled along the western reaches of the highway. But just as Sheremy saw the sign for East Smithfield, he also saw something else. Crabs! Mrs. wailed. Featherous pubis! Sheremy gasped. What an evil fortune! Crab lice and I am quite done in. The crabs scuttled towards Sheremy and Mrs., their pincers clacking their round bodies swaying like sacks of gruel, while on their evil little faces lay expressions of ravenous hunger. Dirk's out, Mrs. said, standing up and adopting a defensive stance. 
Cherami copied her, his hope fading, but the crabs, it seems, were intelligent and realized the pair were no easy prey. By shouting and waving their dirks, they were able to scare the beasts off. Quickly, Mrs. said, grabbing Cherami by the hand. I'll lead now, all the ways to Whitechapel. Past the Royal Mint buildings they ran, across Royal Mint Street, then into the soft and butter-yellow hair of Mansell Street. We're in Whitechapel, we is, Mrs. said with a sigh. Cherami nodded. Already noon had passed. They ate the biscuits, then drank the last of their boiled water. At which point Cherami, exhausted from lack of sleep and his recent exertions, knew he must rest. Mrs. agreed. She felt a little better. In a doorway, concealed by a mop of brown hair, they curled up, each comforting the other, hand in hand. Cherami woke, Doze woke again. Night had fallen. Whitechapel was quiet, the sky dark, no lamps in Mansell Street, no rain to trouble them, no wind, not even a hint of a breeze. London town quiescent, as if waiting, waiting. Then the sound of a distant scream, a woman's scream, splitting the Whitechapel air, and Sheremy jumped to his feet. A scream did not bode well. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. <laughs>